0: For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello, how are you doing? I'm excited to bring you another listener story from our Pass the Mic call out. This really is the series five finale. Do you love how we've been stretching this one out? (laughs) I don't want it to stop, but actually we'll be back before you know it. We've got some really big interviews for you for series six. And if you miss us, make sure you catch up and stay up to date at thewardrobecrisis.com. As you know, we're launching our new online courses very soon. And I really hope that you'll join us. You can register on the website. Okay. Today's guest is an Aussie listener who's making waves in Melbourne with her disruptive accessories brand. It's called Symmetry and her name is Simone Aegis. And there's a few reasons why we chose Simone's story to share with you. There's her take on crafts, womanship. I said that on purpose. Love that word. There's also her ideas on what luxury means. She talks about how it's been kind of twisted by big luxury brands that kind of bump up the prices and don't tell us why and they're just not transparent enough on what goes into it. But the big one, the big kind of pull for me in wanting to tell someone's story is her approach to sharing. Before she even had a brand, Simone was teaching other people her craft and process. She's really open about what it takes to produce her work and her designs and she really wants to share the love and I love this whole thing. It's great. I feel like the idea of sharing knowledge as one of the kind of solutions to unsustainable fashion feels very modern to me. I've been quite obsessed with um new age of Aquarius thinking and how we're moving into a new era where the old power dynamics are falling away and all the ways in which we used to do things are just becoming completely obsolete. And to me, this idea of radical sharing, it, it just fits in with that so beautifully. I'd love to know what you think. This is a bright conversation about sharing being a maker, not a marketer, and how I guess we might get together and just reframe fashion's values. I want to thank Simone for putting a hand up to be on the show and to thank everyone else who did so too. And to say, uh, we'll definitely be doing this again in the future. You can find Symmetry online. It's spelt S-I-M-E-T-R-I-E, symmetry.com.au. And of course, there are more links as usual in the show notes. Okay, are you ready? let's get into it with Melbourne maker and generous spirit, Simone Agis. Simone, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Great to talk to you. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Do you want to begin just by telling us a little bit about what you do in the fashion world?
1: I have a brand called Symmetry and it's been around for only two years. So it's still quite a young brand. The brand is about balancing the making of handbags with our love for the planet and for the people that make them as well. I studied fashion, got my bachelor at RMIT in Melbourne, Australia, and that's where the where I'm based now. And I got a job soon after working for quite a big handbag company and that was kind of like my dream job. I was studying on the side to do like a short course in bag making. And that's really like the only kind of training that you can get in leather in Melbourne, Australia. There's no other formal training. I think it was like a 10 week program or something like that. And that's what really sparked my
0: interest. And then that's kind of what led me to that dream job. And I was there for four years did it not turn out to be your dream job? Because what was it that spurred you on to create symmetry and and make you want to do something on your own? Beyond, obviously, just wanting to make something of your own. But what what was it that made you think, I want to do things differently?
1: Well, it was kind of funny, actually. They did like a screening of the True Cost documentary at the office. And that was the thing that kind of made me question, shit, what am I doing here? (laughs) And I just felt like this really small part I was like a tiny cog in this massive machine and I felt like anything I did, my voice wouldn't be heard. I feel like if I was going to bring up concerns about what we were doing, then it just wasn't going to create change.
0: Because of the system.
1: Because of the system. Yeah, like we were producing volume, like considerable volume, maybe not a lot in terms of, it's not a fast fashion brand, I have to say, but we were producing considerable volume, we were using very
0: cheap materials. I've got to say, when you said maybe not a lot, and of course you meant in the global context, I just desperately wanted to interrupt and say in your context because you make one at a time. (laughs) I know, (laughs) I know, I know, I know. Yeah, well. So what's volume for symmetry? Three? Pretty much, yeah. Like we do
1: one at a time. At the moment, I'm trying to stick to two at a time because when we do one at a time, we really aren't making money.
0: Before we get into the angle that I wanted to kind of pin you down on, which was your suggestion, which is why we chose you to tell your story, let's just yep. really briefly give us an idea of what these bags that you make look like.
1: Well, they're quite graphic. They're s- symbolic of the moon. They're crescent moon shape, which is, you know, I didn't invent it. It's an iconic shape. It's um, inspired from vintage to some degree. I love 70s fashion and... You know, one of my favourite handbag brands is Chloe and that style definitely inspires me. And they're clean, they're elegant, they look beautiful. They're just beautifully handcrafted bags.
0: But they're also, I'm not sure if they're entirely so, but hand-stitched, right?
1: They're not entirely hand-stitched. There's a lot of hand processes though. As I mentioned, they're either one or two at a time. There's a lot of gluing involved. We use water-based glues. When I first started learning about leather, it was all solvent-based glues, which is extremely toxic to be breathing in all day. And it was actually at the Hermes traveling show when the woman from the atelier was sitting there. She was stitching a handle or something like that, and she had the, the little pot of glue next to her, and she had the French translator. And I was like, can you ask her what's in the pot? And he was like, aqua. I was like, water. Water-based glue. I get this, and that was literally when I was like, "Okay, I'm switching to water-based glue. We're doing that. If Hermes is doing it, we can do it."
0: For listeners who aren't aware of this incredible traveling exhibition that Hermes did, which actually came to Sydney and to Melbourne and traveled in all different countries, I'm not sure exactly where, but I did go and see it in Sydney and. The luxury French iconic fashion house brought their processes to a museum context, but in a living way. And so you could actually meet the artisans and see them do what they do. It was amazing, right?
1: It was so cool. I was there for like three hours just watching it. It was awesome.
0: And the fact that you asked about materials and they told you and it helped you in your process is amazing.
1: Yeah, definitely. We now buy glue. It's an Italian glue and it's awesome stuff, but it does mean that we have to stitch everything because solvent-based glue is super strong. It's what they use in shoes where you don't need stitching to have a strong adhesive. Oh, okay. But with bags, you know, like when you see an acne bag that doesn't have the top-line stitching and everything's bonded, that's solvent glue. Water-based glue you needed to stitch the layers together because over time it will come apart. So it just adds more labor to our process, but it means that we're not breathing in toxins. We're not washing down toxins into the waterways when we're, you know, disposing of the glue, but it also has led us to, you know, what are other ways we can minimize harsh chemicals or plastics in our process? And that's really what I've really tried to focus on is minimizing plastics. So that's why we've kept using leather, even though the vegan audience is never going to love us. Let's just face that. But we are using the most sustainable, most ethical leather available because it's natural, it's durable, it's going to wear with you, it's repairable. There's all of these other pros to it. And then... We combine that with water-based glues, water-based dyes and pigments that the tannery does for us, wax coatings, which are also natural. And then we were stitching everything by hand in the beginning with linen threads because you can't get machine linen threads. We saddle stitch everything, which is a two needle process. And we Pre punch the holes. When we're hand stitching, we pre punch all the holes and we're sewing with two needles. Basically, if one stitch comes undone, the whole thing won't unravel. It's isolated to that one stitch. So it's the strongest stitching method. I was hand stitching everything for the first six months and I got the advice what are you doing, Simone? You're a martyr. You're never going to make a business out of this. You've got to start machining. And the reason why I was adverse to machining was because you couldn't get a natural thread to work in the machine. So it it just snaps. Oh, right. So the threads we use now are 50% cotton, 50% polyester. So it has to be that way. Otherwise, we really wouldn't be in business.
0: As you know, I wanted to include your story, not just because of craftswomanship. I wanted to say that, not craftsmanship. Yes. (laughs) And the handmade, but because of this whole idea of sharing skills, which you do in this incredible way. Tell us about the workshops.
1: Yeah, so the workshops actually was the whole reason why I started Symmetry. And I launched the workshops before I launched the website. So I was hosting back then on a platform called We Teach Me. The inspiration kind of behind that was to share what I'd learned over the years. Um, it's such a trial and error process, it's very solitary learning leather craft and learning bag making. There's just nowhere to do it in Melbourne not much you can do in the way of formal training. So it's a lot of YouTubing, a lot of trial and error and a lot of just, yeah, figuring it out on
0: your own. Did they not offer courses at your fashion school, which is an iconic one and famous all around the world, but do they not have accessories course? There's no accessories stream. I think they're working on one at
1: the moment, but what I studied was apparel. It wasn't until my final year, the honours year, When I started working with leather, I interned with a guy, Mick Peel. He has a brand called Busy Man Bicycles. He introduced me to Kangaroo Leather and he is a nutter. He does everything all by hand. He hand stitches everything. This is why when I started the brand, I was like, I'm going to hand stitch everything. And yeah, I fell in love with Kangaroo Leather. I love the way it worked. It's so strong
0: and then it softens as well. It's just a beautiful material to work with. People will definitely be wondering, is it possible to source sustainable and transparent kangaroo leather? Where does it come from? Did you look into that? And do you now? Kangaroo leather, I only use kangaroo leather with symmetry
1: because in my opinion, it's an ethical leather. It's sustainably sourced as well. It's part of the culling program that they have in place to keep populations down.
0: And actually, I should just say, you know, if you're a vegan, you're a vegan and these questions are moot points i suppose but if you're talking about using animal products and using leather this is not farmed it's It's certainly not factory farms not farmed at all you're right they're not factory farmed
1: they're killed in their native environment they're killed in their habitat they're not stressed they're not being trucked they're not being fed hormones there's so much unethical treatment that happens in factory farming that isn't happening in this case
0: we weren't actually going to discuss all of this, but I do think it's really relevant and interesting. And I just want to ask you briefly, what about the tannery process or the tanning process?
1: So the great thing about using kangaroo leather is that it's guaranteed that it's in Australia and there's a lot of government regulations around that as well. So I've got certificates about where the leather comes from and we work with two tanneries, one is in Sydney, they're called Birdsall, and one is in Geelong, and they're called Oz Tanners, And they actually work together very closely.
0: And I'll bet there'll be listeners in Australia who don't even know that we still have tanneries in this country. So that's interesting. Now, I want to get back to the angle that made me jump on speaking to you for this episode, which is sharing. So you started off doing these workshops because you wanted to, as you just said, share what you'd learned. But you also had been working with an asylum seeker centre in Melbourne to train some of the women there in sewing, hadn't you?
1: Yeah, so I did one year volunteering for the ASRC, amazing organisation, really humbling experience. I was part of a group of three volunteers and we started up this sewing program for the women's hub part of the centre. It was really crafty kind of projects. We were making drawstring bags, little zip pouches, aprons, cushions, that kind of stuff. But there was a few really superstar sewers that picked it up so quickly, had some, you know, skills from their home country as well, incorporated, and they were coming to me asking to learn more. And I was at the time conceiving the idea of symmetry this was before I'd launched and I was like I want to work with these women with my brand and somehow incorporate them into it so that's kind of where the workshops came from I was like if I could set up a business model where I train women that are desperate for work and make the bags easy enough to make train them in it and then basically I'm like educating my workforce as it goes but It could also happen in a scenario where someone comes and pays to do a workshop, they fall in love with the craft and then maybe they keep training with me on the side and then they eventually work for me um, in the future as well. So, yeah, it was a bit like starting an apprenticeship program but without officially being that.
0: Okay, fast forward and you now deliver these workshops online or in person when COVID doesn't prevent it. But what's driving it? Because this is part of your business model but is it a kind of unlock to a more sustainable future, true connection? Is it something you're still trying to change lives through training, perhaps marginalised groups? No, because anyone can come and do your courses, right? Why are you doing it and what drives it?
1: The love of sharing, plus also educational as well. And part of that is to kind of sh- you know, bring the reality to people like this is how hard it is to make a bag. I mean, I break it down for you. I make it easy for you when you come and do the workshop and it's a great and fun experience for you. But all my students come away at the end of it and they're like, wow, there is so much involved in this process. And even though they did it with me, they would still be like, oh my God, am I going to be able to do this again? (laughs) It's very time consuming. There's a lot of hours.
0: When we talked the other day, you said, you want to demystify this process that we just don't have much access to or we don't have much visibility on. You also said it's quite easy to see people repair things. You might go to your local cobbler or uh, an alterations sewist and see how they fix something. But we don't see often the process of creation, right? No,
1: no, definitely not. Yeah, and I think people are used to that process of getting things repaired, but they're not used to seeing how they're made. And even though we have like those beautiful videos you know, that the marketing teams put together of, you know, the Chanel 2.55 bag and the Dior bags and they're always just like a gloved hand sewing them. You never see the face of that person actually making the bag and I guess that's what we're trying to do as well. Yeah, we're trying to, yeah, demystify who it is that's making it. It's a real person and in the case of symmetry, it's real women like It's only women that work with us and, you know, traditionally in the fashion industry it's women that are getting shortchanged in the supply chain and we're trying to, I guess, showcase that women have real skills, we have real value and it's craftswomanship literally and we're trying to showcase that and, I guess, educate our audiences that we are making very good quality bags, and we love what we do, and we're doing it in the best conditions with fair pay.
0: Welcome to Wardrobe Crisis Academy. I'm Claire Press. I'm the founder and one of the course leaders. Are you curious about sustainability in fashion? Do you want to learn more about the issues that you care about? Is there stuff you find confusing about this topic? Or do you want to make your business more sustainable, but you can't afford a fancy consultant? Or maybe you want to upskill so that you can influence change in a bigger organisation. Maybe you just have that feeling that you know you could be a leader in this space, and you just want more information and more support. Wardrobe Crisis Academy is for you. There's something for everyone, wherever you sit in the fashion ecosystem, whether you're in the business or want to be, or just someone who loves clothes. In these courses, we want to help you find your way into making fashion more sustainable. Or if you already have, we want to supercharge it, really hone in on what's driving you to make sustainable change and to help you employ it as effectively as possible in your work and life. To get ahead, you need to be armed with the facts and as much knowledge as possible about the big issues and how they intersect. But you also need to understand the challenges and the opportunities. And that's what we're here for. We've designed these courses to be rich with information that goes in and stays in, but also really inspiring and get you participating, because that's where the change happens. We're launching our school in May. It's online and everyone's welcome. It won't break the bank. That is like one of the big, big things about this. You can buy a course for the cost of dinner and you'll also be able to subscribe and access a whole bunch of them. Sustainable Fashion 101 is our introductory course designed to give you a foundational knowledge of the issues driving sustainable and ethical fashion now and to empower you to start taking more action. It's structured over six weeks, and it's delivered in partnership with Arch & Hook, the world's number one sustainable hanger brand, as well as the Australian Fashion Council. But it's global, so anywhere around the world, you can access these courses and learn with us together. There's a lot more to come, and I invite you to join us. To be first, go to thewardrobecrisis.com for more details. It's interesting, isn't it, that that definitely changes the way we value things. If you... I don't know if you read some. You mentioned marketers. Marketers are my pet hate. You yeah. know if you read um, because I think that. Well, of course, that's just the way the world works. There's so much spin involved, and a lot of these words that we have now grown used to when it comes to talking about luxury fashion, to me, have lost their meaning. We've heard yeah. them so many times; they're cliches, even if they are actually used in truth. So things like crafted, things like heritage, things yeah. like even perhaps luxury. But what does it really mean? Because I could tell you what I think a luxury product means, but what do you think it means? Like, how would you define it?
1: Luxury is like such an interesting concept to me and it's something I actually studied at uni in my last year. And how is it? it? Well, I ended up doing like a thesis about the dark side of luxury or the shadow of luxury. And it's the reason why fashion is so fast the way it is because we're trying to catch up with all these trends that come from Europe and... They invented the calendar, like the fact that we're on this, you know, four seasons, sometimes six seasons a year. This calendar, this need to go on sale because we've got new stuff coming in. The newness is what's driving the volume at the moment.
0: But those things aren't related to luxury or shouldn't be, right? Speed, volume, and yet it's status, right? They
1: shouldn't be. But they're driving it. Yeah, it is status and luxury is just turning out to be this expensive status symbol. And it's kind of confusing why it is so expensive and I'd be super curious
0: to know what their margins are. But this is a very interesting point. Let's talk about this. How would you define luxury? What's luxury mean to you? Oh, that's a really
1: hard question. I think luxury is, it's like a mystery. It's something you fall in love with. Like we said, it's a status symbol that you just have to have and at any cost because it seems like they're priceless items and once you buy into it, you're like this epitome of the lifestyle that they're throwing at you and that's the messaging they give you.
0: Buy this and you will feel this. So that's your dark side but what about the good side? Like if you could redefine it and say, well, actually, I think true luxuries should stand for, what would it be? True luxury should stand for
1: beautiful clothes, beautiful objects made with love. They should be showcasing who the hands are behind and who the face is behind. It's, you know, when you used to go to the tailor on the street and you would meet the person that used to fit you and that really is luxury. It's made to order. That is really the epitome of luxury. This was literally made
0: for you. It's almost like you bring it back to the human
1: Well, definitely. That's kind of what's been removed from the marketing because the women that are in the marketing aren't human. (laughs) It's a symbol of, it's an unattainable symbol these days. And I think it makes it aspirational. And that's why people want it so much. Because like, if I aspire to be this, I need to buy this.
0: So maybe your luxury is about another one of those overused words, authenticity, but trying to keep it real.
1: It's a conundrum I've been toiling with for a long time, you know, because I'm not at the price point of those luxury brands. Symmetry is not thousands of dollars. I have one handbag that's over $1,000, but that's because it takes 18 hours to make. Yeah, I'm in this kind of mid-range where I'm not accessible, I'm not super luxury. But at the same time, I'm trying to make it achievable that you save up. It's not an impulse purchase. It's something that you see... You think about, you save up for it and then you buy it and then you never have to buy another bag again.
0: Thank you for coming back to price because I think that was such an interesting point that you raised before about, first of all, you started talking about the film The True Cost. Then you're talking about these mystifying prices of some luxury products where we actually can't imagine or see what the processes were that add up to those prices. And I don't think you're the only person who's an independent designer who said, I'd love to see the margins on that. And actually... Actually, see what the percentage is. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? Because totally. It's almost arbitrary. Let's talk about cost, how you price things, and how you manage it. The costing
1: is really difficult because I'm costing things as if I was making them five at a time, basically, or 10 at a time, ideally. But in reality, we're making one at a time pretty much. And like I said, I'm trying to move away from that and at least make multiples where possible. Because when we make one at a time, like the time it takes to set up the machine, to go from one machine to another, to remember how we made the construction again, you know, that all takes time. So (laughs) all that time adds up and, you know, something that should only take you two hours takes you the whole day. So the margins I hope to achieve with my batch production is 50%. And that, you know, is the minimum what you should be achieving if you're direct to consumer. So that's the reason why Symmetry doesn't wholesale and why you won't see us on any other platforms. But then that shoots you in the foot as well, because then no one finds out about you. So it is really challenging. And sometimes, you know, we get approached by, you know, wholesalers or dropshipping websites. And sometimes it sounds like a good opportunity and. There has been websites where I've thought this might be great, join, because then if people find us, we'll just attribute the loss to like a marketing cost. And I think, you know, in some instances it could be worth it. We haven't really found that yet. <laughs> but it is really hard to navigate this whole process because at the end of the day I'm not, I'm not a marketer. I'm a bag maker and I'm a bag designer. And I think that's the really tricky part of navigating small business, balancing everything.
0: There's also, I think, kind of a resistance that's perhaps born out of not understanding or not knowing what these processes are from the customer who says, well, God, why is it so expensive? I can't afford that. That's crazy. Yeah. And of course, let's be real about this. Everyone can't afford everything and sustainable, ethically produced things can be price prohibitive. But I think if people understood or could see how you do what you do, they would understand how many hours stack up. And how much love's gone into it, right? And therefore why it's worth something.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that's why we do the workshops. And that's why we we share those skills. Because if someone wants to take our design and replicate it, good on them. Go for it. Have a go. What (laughs) see if you make money on it? (laughs) See if you make money on it. (laughs) It's a really tricky gig. And even today, you know, we were cutting out patterns and I had doubles and Clements, the other leather crafts person that works with me, she was like, should I shred these? And I was like, you for real shred them? Like someone's going to go dumpster diving and take the patterns out of the bin and replicate what we've made. Good on them if they do. <laughs> yeah, like I just don't think it's possible. If they copy our designs, I feel like they're going to be subpar anyway. They're not going to be as good as what we make.
0: Okay, there's so many things in this. We're running out of time, but I don't want to. I want to talk more about this because there's so many things that you've raised that are just, I think lots of people think about these issues and will really be listening to you going, oh God, like what's the way through it, right? Because first of all, basically snaps to you and aren't you awesome that you have the confidence in your own creative power to be able to say you know what my thing is my thing and I don't have to panic that other people are going to try and nick it or try and do what I can do because only I can do what I do which is amazing but I want to ask you about this idea of well maybe (laughs) what about this generational idea though and we talked about this before someone like do you think we're going to move into a new era where the old ways of hiding don't copy my homework everything's mine IP protecting, yeah. not sharing, is going to give way to something else. Yeah, I think that's we're already seeing a shift in that.
1: I think a lot of the brands in the Melbourne community, you know, that I speak to and that I hear from all the time, we're always sharing, sharing suppliers, even publicly sharing. There's websites, you know, Lois Hazel was doing it, ABCH is doing it, a lot of brands are doing it where they're publishing the suppliers right there on the website so if you want to know where the where the thread's from where the labels are from it's there in plain sight and I think even I've had advice in the past what are you doing giving away your design and your construction methods in your workshops like it doesn't make good business sense but like I said at the end of the day it is about skill sharing and the idea that I keep coming back to as well is that it's a dying industry. If we don't share these skills, the industry is literally going to die in the next 10, 20, 30 years because unfortunately, the people that are still working in it are getting old. They're retiring. They don't want to work full-time hours anymore. Even the guys that I work with that come and service my machines, the guys I work with that cut the straps for symmetry, uh, the guy I work with that makes the cutting knives for symmetry, they don't want to work full time hours anymore. They're playing golf on Fridays. They're knocking off work early during the week. You know, you can't pin them down unless they really want to work with you, which is kind of why Symmetry is growing. You know, they see that Symmetry is a young brand and they're a bunch of great guys because they help me out and you know it's a testament to who they are as well because they've been in the industry for so long and that you know they see a young brand and they just want to help help us out which is awesome you know they inspire me if I really wanted to do more with my life I'd become a knife cutter a knife maker and work for Tony. And I'd go take up a part-time job in the strap factory too, because it's awesome. What they do there is awesome. And I think once those factories close, that's basically the skills lost.
0: It just occurred to me that you're not just sharing knowledge, you're actually sharing passion. And that's something I think if you want to try and put values on things, that's the invaluable best bit, right? Yeah, definitely. And I give this
1: advice you know, because I have a day job. <laughs> I give this advice in my consulting life because people come to me and they want to make bag brands and I say to them, you got to be passionate. You've got to have that passion and I've definitely got that passion and I think I love creating, I love making. I was definitely born to be a maker. I was not born to be behind a desk which was another reason why I left the corporate world.
0: What sort of family did you come from? Are you from a family of creative people or makers?
1: I was a creative kid and, yeah, mum taught me to sew when I was young, probably when I was 12 or something. And Mum taught me to knit when I was even younger. I think I was maybe six or seven when she taught me how to knit and crochet. Yeah, and dad is in manufacturing. He's a metal worker. So our parents really instilled, you know, we come from an ethnic background. My grandparents migrated here. They're from Malta and Italy. My parents, both born in Melbourne, so I'm second generation Australian, but I still feel really lucky that we're here. Australia truly is the lucky country and I find inspiration from Australians, from First Nations peoples, from other migrant peoples as well because I feel like we are kind of the generations that really understand the luck that we have in Australia and I always... You know, come back to my roots when it comes to, I guess, my my work ethic.
0: Do you want to end by just saying why or if you think that this idea of sharing and holding workshops and encouraging others to do what we do is one of the big solutions for sustainability? You I think so. No. Don't say no. no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: nah, nah. Well, Bye. Yeah, yeah, nah, but um, no. <laughs> I think definitely. I think an interesting part of workshops is going to be maybe opening up to children as well because they're the ones that you know in this like digital age and we've got to get them more hands-on and the further we get and the further we lose this kind of hands-on creativity is what's going to send us backwards not forwards so I think skill sharing is definitely the future and it's what's going to keep everything in local industries because That's what we need to kind of minimise volume. We need to be servicing just our local needs and our local audiences. We don't need to be targeting mass markets. We're creating surplus when we do that. We just need to be facilitating our local industries and our local audiences and that only comes from having local skills. So I think that really is going to be the future.
0: Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode and read our magazine over on our website www.thewardrobecrisis.com And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs Press. Finally, if you'd like to support us financially, look for Wardrobe Crisis on Patreon. There's also a link in our Instagram. But for what you'd spend on a magazine each month, you can be part of the Wardrobe Crisis Patron community and you'll get exclusive podcast content, articles and special access. My friends are
1: I'm going care-